people pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. Hey folks, welcome to a special episode of The Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. On this episode, I'm talking with Jesse Pyers, the director and curator at the Lightbox Film Center. We are discussing his work down in Philadelphia, as well as the work that the Lightbox is doing on restoration of things like Wayne Wang's Life is Cheap, But Toilet Paper is Expensive, as well as some other titles that I am very excited to see. Hope you enjoy the interview. Tell me a little bit more about you. How did you get into the film programming and curation business? Interesting story. I mean, it's it's very much tied up with the organization that I am now the director of. So this is Lightbox Film Center that, that I'm now the director and curator of here in Philadelphia. And Lightbox is the latest incarnation of a program that was, was started in the mid-1970s in West Philadelphia as a kind of community-facing, independent, you know, film exhibition project that, you know, specialized in independent film and documentaries and really kind of unique programming that eventually needed a larger home and came to an organization called International House, which was a student residential facility on the between the campuses of Drexel University and the University of Pennsylvania. Had a really wonderful long life there in the 1980s and 90s. I, I came to see screenings there as a student at Temple University. I eventually started working there as a work-study student at that time, which, you know, was the kind of early, mid-90s, right at that kind of moment of indie cinema having its, you know, moment in the sun. And then in 2019, so I, and I, I was in New York for a while. I came back to Philadelphia and got involved again with the, the folks at then the Neighborhood Film Project. And then in 2019, the building, it was announced that the building was to be sold. And I'd been there for about 15 or 16 years at this point, running the programs. And it was like, wow, I really want to see films there earlier. It was kind of in my DNA at this point. I really didn't want to see this thing disappear. And thankfully, the president of University of the Arts was aware of the program and really was a fan of it and is just a, a fan of, in general, of a film. So it was like, hey, we're, you know, come here, do, do it here. We're going to, build a new screening room eventually and you can that is your space so so that's that's how we, i got here now i've been to international house a few times and i even drove all the way from detroit to philadelphia just to see a screening of world's greatest center there i believe that was amazing and that went with uh the what's his name his son um, romeo carey yeah romeo carey right yes yeah you know it's funny i helped facilitate that program for some reason I was I don't know I don't know where I was that night I was somewhere else I had to be somewhere else and missed that program but I, I know a lot of people who went and uh, yeah such a, a crazy film cra crazy night <laughs> I'm sorry I missed it so where is this new center at the university is right in the center of uh, Philadelphia we're right on South Broad Street so it's it's a you know much more centralized location you know, I think some of our West Philly folks are sad to see us leave that part of the city, but but now we have a whole new community to draw from. And and again, you know, it's now part of a university, so there's a you know student presence as well. 
that I think is, is, you know, makes this kind of the perfect fit. And did you actually go to school for what you're doing? You know, I have an interesting trajectory there as well. I went to Temple in the early 90s, as I said, and with the intention of of being a filmmaker. You know, I, I like I said, it was this was the early 90s and Spike Lee and Kevin Smith and you know Richard Link, all that stuff was percolating. And I was like, oh, this is this is the moment. I'm gonna, you know, live live the dream and make my uh, you know, indie hit or whatever. So I went to Temple and you know, I think I was kind of turned off at a certain point of, of the vibe of the film folk. I don't know, something just kind of didn't sit right with me. So I so I ended up studying American studies. That was my major because I really wanted to be more, you know, engaged by by other art forms, right? I you know, I knew that I was a fan of film and, and music, and I just wanted to like consume these things and really, you know, understand them more deeply. So that's what happened. And then I and I moved to New York shortly after graduation. And rather than going to grad school, something I may still <laughs> regret one day, I I was a manager of a video store in the West Village and met a lot of amazing folks, a lot of film fans, a lot of people who were, were involved in film. Um, and just like that was my my school, you know, for a few years, I would just take home a stack of you know, video cassettes at that point and watch films and you know think about film talk about films with all my friends and that that's what led me back to international house lightbox you know returning to the film program and then you know getting involved in um and kind of shaping the identity of that program how did you guys survive the pandemic i, I moved there in january of 2020 so we re so we reopened the theater and at the end of February, to much fanfare, we we shut we shut down, you know, from the old building, and people were, you know, worried. Oh, is it going to come back? We came back with a vengeance. I mean, we sold out screening of Satan Tango. We did a the Matthew Barney most recent Matthew Barney film, and then a, and then a documentary on DC punk. And that was the last film that we did right at the end of February. We were about to, you know, we had already announced our spring program, and then everything shut down. You know, like most venues, we're we're really searching for you know how do we make this work? And obviously, you know, streaming and you know online content of some sort was was part of the became part of the plan. You know, all the distributors kind of shifted pretty quickly to that, but you know that that's not that wasn't sustaining in any significant way. And I think part of the reason we're here chatting, I found out shortly after the pandemic came upon us that one of the trustees of the university wanted to invest a large amount of money into Lightbox. Basically, kind of welcome to the school. You know, here's here's a some funds to get you started on a new project. You know, wh what do you want to do? And at this point, you know, we were no longer screening films in person. And that was, who knows when that was going to come back. So my thoughts were, my thoughts were, you know, what about film preservation? You know, we were, a lot of the work we do, we screen repertory film, a lot of newly preserved, new, newly restored films. And so I know that people in that community, archivists and distributors, let's enter into that fray a little more deeply. And, and you know, now that we have the funds, we can actually do our own preservation works. Yeah. So that was, that's been exciting and, and, you know, not something I have the background in necessarily. So it's been a bit of a um, learning experience, but an exciting one as well. What kind of projects are you looking at to restore? The most recent one that we did is Wayne Wang's film Life is Cheap, but Toilet Paper is Expensive, a film he made in 1989. 
which initially received an X rating, was kind of trashed by uh, critics and audiences. So really didn't have much of a a life. In fact, you know, that wasn't even. You know, I knew Wayne Wang from mostly. You know, Chan is missing, obviously, and then Smoke and Blue in the Face were kind of his breakout hits in a sense. So when I found out about this film, I was intrigued, and when I finally got to see it, it was it kind of blew me away. Um, so that was the first release that we we did that was in conjunction with the Pacific Film Archive at the Berkeley Art Museum. And now that's being distributed by Arbelos Films. Yeah, what is the history with that film? Because I was sent a copy of that and I totally missed that one. Like you, I think I was familiar with Chan is Missing, Eatable Tea, I think was another one of his and just kind of, yeah, like Smoke and Blue in the Face, which really for me, play very much in that Jarmusch space to the point where I thought they were Jarmusch films at first before I realized, oh no, this is Wayne Wang doing this. And he was such an important figure back in the early 90s because there was that independent boom that you're talking about. And then he was one of the very few Asian filmmakers that were actually out there making these movies and really kind of challenging expectations. And I think Life is Cheap challenges them more than anything else that he did. No, I think it's incredibly ahead of its time. Uh, you know, when you think of like Tarantino and then the stuff that was you know, happening a, f- a few years later, the Coen brothers and things like that. Um, and Wayne is such an interesting filmmaker, you know, his, his career is sort of all over the place. So to see this film, it just struck me that, you know, he, he's kind of his own, his own artist and really follows his own vision. And in fact, so, and so in my conversations with him and the work that we did with the film, you know, it, it, was discussed how he likes to work in in these sort of diptychs. So, for example, Smoke and Blue in the Face are kind of these parallel films in a way. Life is Cheap came about while he was filming Eat a Bowl of Tea in Hong Kong. And evidently, he and the, the lead actor, Spencer Nakasako, were like, let's just run around and film stuff. Like, And, you know, and a lot of the uh, content of the film characters are were kind of pulled from real experiences or things that they were reading about so it's all this kind of hodgepodge of ripped from the headlines filmmaking and and done in in a very almost kind of verite style i mean the 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 foot chase thing is pretty pretty incredible <laughs> well just all of those characters speaking directly to us to the audience and giving some very let's say interesting monologues as they're going along even starting with the dog killer at the very beginning you know again these are all kind of real experiences you know real or st- real stories or at least adapted you know from these real stories it's a crazy way to make a film like i said he he just was like let's just shoot stuff and we'll assemble these kind of vignettes you know and i think he was also conscious of the fact that hong kong was eventually about to be returned to china uh the ha- handover you know, so wanted to capture that that vibe, what was happening at at the moment, what what Hong Kong felt like to him. You know, and it's and it's an homage to the the triad films in a way, but but also very different. He's doing a lot in 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 the film. Yeah, I was even feeling a little Leone in there with the man with no name who's going around, and it feels like even though Hong Kong is the easternmost part, it feels like it is a frontier. And to your point, it's about to be sucked back into the rest of China. And then, you know, God knows what's happening over there today because there hasn't been any news that I've seen in a long time of what's happening, but it's a wild, wild movie. What was the condition of the print when you first started working with that? 
Wayne was just about to, when we started talking to him, he was just about to hand over his materials to the Pacific Film Archive. That's partially what precipitated this was, you know, here's a film that in this collection that that has, that is a need of preservation. I don't know, I didn't do the lab work. I wasn't present for the lab work. That's Ross Lipman. I don't know if you know Ross. He's an incredible film archivist and artist in, in his own right. So, um, so he worked with Wayne. But, you know, from what I understand, the, the materials were in fairly good shape. What's interesting also about the film is there was an initial theatrical release that played some festivals and had a limited theatrical run. And then I think by the time it made it onto DVD, only a couple years later, Wayne had already recut the film. The version I initially saw was, I guess, 1991 or so DVD cut. And then when we started talking to Wayne, he said, well, I'd like to make a director's cut. I still, you know, I, I'm still not finished. I still have a kind of grand vision for what this film should be. That vision is now complete. You know, he's he's now made the director's cut. And of course, the original, very first, you know, theatrical version is also still preserved. I mean, you mentioned that it got an X rating or it almost got an X rating, but then he rejected the rating. Is that right? Yeah, I guess it was not an X. It was like, I guess right around the NC-17 time. But I think the, I don't think it was NC-17. It was something else like A for adults only. Yeah, yeah. Which is strange because it's not particularly sexual. There's certainly some, some, some violence. And obviously some some pretty scatological elements. And then I want to say that there was also some problems with Disney as well, that uh, there's some mouse ears in the film that eventually had to get taken out. I think he may have done that just out of caution, from what I understand. Yeah, I don't know if there was a threat from Disney at that point, but but I think he may have kind of felt like this is going to continue. You know, we're going to need to modify that. Yeah. So what's it like now seeing this restored version? It's great. I mean, so happy that the film is getting a new life. And like I said, I you know, it's I think it's really ahead of its time and I'm I hope people can see that uh, you know, it, it's it's still very relevant. It still has a great kind of edginess to it. I mean, I, I really love the film. I, you know, and I can appreciate both versions. You know, I, I think that his director's cut adds some different elements. Even there was even material that was shot on video later, like a few years later that was inserted into the director's cut in the, the market, the Hong Kong market uh, place there. In my talks with Wayne, you know, because he was saying, oh, you know, there's, it's too, you know, it's, it's too excessive. It's, it's so like immature. You know, I think he probably felt like it was very self-indulgent and wanted to rein some of that in. But personally, I, I can appreciate that in cinema sometimes. I, I like that quality, you know, I mean, sometimes it can be obnoxious and, and kind of kill your, your vibe with the film, but Seeing that original cut, it was like, yeah, this is this is outrageous. <laughs> this is just nonstop. So when does the light box open back up? We reopened in September of 2021. It was great because I felt like people were really waiting, you know, for, for that moment to come back. And we, yeah, we 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 had some amazing, you know, screenings. I mean, we we were at limited capacity at first, but we were still filling the house pretty regularly. You know, I think that there was like that weird feeling during the pandemic of being home for, you know, over a year and a lot of weird, weird stuff happened, right? Like in the streaming world and the studios. And and there was this kind of feeling of like, is this the thing that's finally going to end cinemas and, you know, got people going to the movies? And I think it maybe it's changed it a bit, you know, not maybe not on our end as much because we're pretty specialized, but uh, I'm sure movie habits these days are significantly different than they were a few years ago. 
So what's your mission now? Like, I know you're probably still doing preservation. There's probably a new project that you're working on, but also when it comes to the theater, how do you go about programming that? What's your, your raison d'etre with that? It hasn't, it hasn't changed drastically or even really at all since we were located in, in West Philadelphia at the different venue. My vision is, has always been to bring together a pretty large and diverse grouping of films under one roof, you know, so on, on any given night, you can come and see beloved classic, you know, French new wave film. The next night there might be some really outrageous 60 millimeter underground experimental films. I did a, I did a tribute to Elliot Gould in the seventies called solid Gould really kind of mixed up, you know, and then, and then of course there's plenty of amazing new films, documentaries and filmmakers that I want to give a platform for. So um, yeah, so it's a, it's a, pretty kind of mixed up interesting uh venue what is your plan for the rest of this year as far as you know what what's your program over the winter months the next thing so we're doing this week actually on thursday we're screening vengeance is mine the michael romer film do you know this which is incredible and and another one of those films that i you know did, did never really got a proper theatrical run and i wasn't familiar with it and jake from the film desk whom, whom i know and have worked with for many years you know, approached me and said, do you, do you want to screen this? I have a new 35 millimeter print. And he sent me a link and I thought, man, this is, this is a bonkers film. <laughs> and I, I, I've been, you know, talking it up quite a bit. So, so that's, that's next on our schedule. What else we're doing? We're doing the new restoration of Tales from Jim Lee Hospital, the, the, the Guy Madden film. There's another film that I'm really excited about in December called Dream Life. That is a French Canadian film. The first French Canadian film directed by a woman. Um, and that's an incredible film as well. Very much in the kind of Celine and Julie go boating vibe there. And, and I, you know, I felt obligated to put together a tribute to Godard. So that's happening early next year. Yeah. That's just some of the stuff that's, that's coming up. Are you doing film and digital at the same time? Yes. Yeah. We have can do DCP and, and digital formats. And then we do have 35 millimeter projectors that we, fire up on occasion um you know i think film is is more expensive to ship these days um but it's you know i, I still think it's 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 worth it, especially when you can't find something that's you know on, available digitally and the other bigger plan that i should mention too is that as as i mentioned earlier the university is building a new screening room so we will eventually have a new state of the art theater in the same building but but you know, right now this this theater is lovely. It's very large. It's kind of an old movie palace space, so it's maybe even too large for us. And you know, a little echoey and drafty. It's kind of a multi-purpose room. So so having a a new new screening space that's more kind of film centric will be will be great. Have you already premiered Life Is Cheap, but toilet paper is expensive? We did earlier in in March of this year. We did a special screening. And Wayne wasn't able to join us in person, but he he zoomed in and had a great conversation with him. And yeah, and yeah, and we and we have a few more preservation projects already in the pipeline at this point. Anything you can talk about? The next one is film by Richard Beamer, who was Tony, I believe, from West Side Story, the original West Side Story, and also was Ben Horn, Twin Peaks. So Richard is an amazing guy, a really interesting character, and made a film in the early 1970s called The Interview. And it's a feature-length experimental film that's really 
crazy <laughs> in, in many ways and wonderful. I mean, just like just employing so many techniques that are associated with experimental film, you know, from that period, but making making them his own. So I so again through Ross was able to connect connected to Richard. So that that is happening. <clears throat> and then another one we're working on now is with in with partner in partnership with the UCLA Film and Television Archive. It's a film by Peter Cass called Time of the Heathen. Uh, and this is from the early 60s and very much part of the kind of new American cinema group type of films from that period. In fact, Ed Emshwiller, another experimental filmmaker, was the cinematographer on this film and did some animation work as well. So so that's also going to be coming out next year. Yeah. Do you ever partner up with any of the other venues in Philly? Because I know that Philly is a great film town. And that's one thing that I think that you know, the rest of America may not be aware of is just how many great events Philadelphia has when it comes to movies. Yeah, it's interesting to say that. I mean, I think I think there's a good film town and then it's sometimes it's not. You know, I, I think the number of venues compared to like Chicago or San Francisco, you know, is, is a little more limited. But I do appreciate that there are some really interesting kind of younger, scrappy programmers doing cool stuff. You know, there, there's the long running 16 millimeter uh, program by Jay Schwartz called Secret Cinema. That's really kind of a, just a one of a kind program. And then um, there's this uh, new group called Cinespeak that are kind of more focused on social justice and political issues and activism. And then, of course, the Film Society runs the the International Film Festival. There's Black Star Film Festival. So yeah, so there, there's some really great programming and people doing cool work here. And, we, and certainly, we yeah, we partner with them when we can, for sure. And then what you've got exhumed, I think, also in the area, and the uh, the whole diabolic crew, and there they do the like twenty four hour marathons and things. Yeah, yeah, we we that was happening at the old venue. We, we haven't we haven't you know dipped our toe in that yet. Oh, I should say we are dipping our toe in because we're doing a double feature next month called Holiday Horrors. So it's so it's just a double feature. Uh, I don't I don't know if the twenty four hour marathon will make it back. It's you know now that we're on a a college campus i feel like there's other rules in place about, about events like that but but they're great i love what they do yeah jesse thank you so much for your time this was great talking with you i really appreciate it yeah thanks so much
Except for that call of the very